And then another thing is that the human eye is built to identify movement. Mm -hmm. And if you are shaking a little bit when you're holding um, just optical binoculars, you can't necessarily see a small movement that's within your field of view. Yeah, everything's moving. Right, everything's moving. So if, you know, when I have these stabilized binoculars, I mean, it's, it's just steady. And if a deer flicks its ear, I can pick that up. Yeah. And every mule deer hunter, you know, knows how important that movement is Yeah, to, to finding that animal. Yeah. The first time. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. What is the right thing to do when you are hunting for, say, a deer or an elk, and you see a coyote? <laughs> that depends. On what? Are you seeing deer or elk? Right now, all you see is a coyote. Oh, yeah. I mean, I th- it's definitely fair game for me. You got to shoot at it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the move. That's been the move. And I think it's good luck. You think it's good luck to kill the coyote? Yes. Okay. You want to yeah. go in on that? Well, first of all, it gets your mind right. And there's been times when I've been elk hunting, seen a coyote, and I'm like, man, maybe I shouldn't shoot right now. I was like, wait, this is a policy. Go ahead, shoot the coyote, and then some elk run out, and you're like, hey, there's elk. Then I killed an elk. It's a move. Yep. I encourage people to try it. Um, feel free to let me know if that's ever worked out for you folks. But definitely, I think you should shoot the coyote. Yeah. I've definitely passed on coyotes. Have you? Yeah, like first first light. You're you're out there. No. Yeah, I've passed on them. No. That make that doesn't surprise me that much about you. No. I'm a, they call me Joe the Merciful. <laughs> <laughs> um so Joe Fructel and myself and a few other folks are out here uh with Jordan Bud in northwest Nebraska. We've been hunting deer this week. Been going well, I'd say. Yeah, real well. Had an awesome time. Shot yep. three bucks. Yep. Three bucks. You got a doe? Got a doe. Got a couple coyotes. Yep. All really good bucks. Yeah. Like the quality of deer here is unbelievable. Yeah. And it's a little different for me hunting whitetail. I haven't hunted a lot of whitetail, so it's this a fun is, experience. This is like open country whitetail hunting. It's legit hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're on the ground, you're moving around, you're glassing. Um we're in the rut right now, so these deer are on the move. There's deer showing up that she's never seen before. Mm-hmm. It's just been really, really fun. And this is the biggest whitetail buck I've ever killed. Yeah. Yeah, and they got they got a cool mix of terrain here. Yeah. Mix a little egg in there. It's a pretty good recipe for having a lot of deer. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. A little egg? Egg. Like agriculture. Like corn oh, plot and oh, stuff up oh. there. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Egg. Egg. Ag, egg, 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 agriculture. Egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who are you, Joe? Uh, I'm Joe Frichtel. I'm the director of product management for Sig Optics. Uh, I've been there for about five and a half years now, six years. Mm-hmm. Kind of got there a little, about a year after the kind of the inception of the whole thing, and. Uh, First couple years, it was pretty uh, kind of startup mode. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Everyone got to wear a lot of hats, as everyone always says, and uh, have a lot of fun. But you got to be comfortable kind of wearing all those different hats. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I do there. You grew up in optics. I did, yeah. My dad worked in uh, in optics. He, uh, um, when we moved back from Brazil, he was working at... Uh, a company that was called Blunt International. They're still around, but they've gotten rid of their uh, shooting sports stuff. But it was over in Lewis and Idaho, and he was running. It's like those brands like Weaver, CCI, Spear. 
um, our CBS. So I kind of grew up with that. Then, uh, took, he took a three year hiatus, went to Wisconsin, was working for a lawnmower company. Mm -hmm. And then he got recruited and went back and, uh, ran loophole for 12 years. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of grew up around, around optics for most of my life. Even, I mean, even the Weaver optics and stuff prior to, to loophole. And six hour electro optics is based in Wilsonville, Oregon. Yep. Not too far from Portland. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We started in, in uh, Tualatin, which is just down the road from Wilsonville, but uh, recently moved into a bigger bigger building there in in, uh, in Wilsonville because we've expanded so much. But yeah, we started in Oregon because, you know, just all of, all of the talent we had there from previous years and previous stops at other companies, you know, right there. So it was good. It was a good recipe for success, and that's kind of how SIG handles things. They don't uh, They don't go out and acquire companies to go out and acquire talent and kind of build their own, which I think is a pretty cool recipe because you, you can have it the way you want it. You know, you're not inheriting something that someone was looking to sell just 10 minutes earlier. So you, uh, you're a college football player. I was a college football player. Yeah. Who'd you play for? Uh, I played for university of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Go buffs. What position? I was an offensive lineman. Yeah. Guard. So pulling guard. I was a pulling guard. Yep. Everyone pulls in college, even senators are pulling in college, but, uh, yeah. So, so what, what are some, some features that would be consistent with the mindset of an offensive guard? Like how, how does your personality, um, match with your physical, physical ability move you into that position? Um, that's kind of an interesting question. I don't know. I feel like linemen, you kind of, uh, you typically, they're not really looking for spotlights. That's not the type of person that's going to end up at an O-line position and enjoy it and excel at it, you know? Right. They're also, uh, I mean, they're kind of protectors. Every play you're out there protecting other players so that other players can do their job. And they you got to kind of put the team first a little bit there. Offensive linemen are really intelligent. D-linemen are pretty stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting bunch. You got to like to get down and dirty, that type of stuff too, kind of grunt work. But I think, uh, I think the thing that's I've noticed with O-lines that I've played with, it's like camaraderie, you know, it's just having fun with the dudes next to you, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me and, you know, in our conversations, it's very evident to you that I know very little about football, mm-hmm. but where you are as an offensive guard, it really is a defensive position. Like you're defending everybody behind and around you. I don't know what you mean by that. Like you're, you're protecting them. You're defending yeah. them against. Yeah. In yeah. an offensive way. Yeah. 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 I'd in, agree with that. In Marine Corps tactics, they say that there's no clear line between offense and defense. Okay. So you can be in a defensive position and attacking mm-hmm. and you can be in an offensive position and be defending. Um, so with, with that sort of trench warfare portion of, of football, it really goes back and forth. Like you have the defense who is definitely on the assault mm-hmm. and you have portions of the offense that are on the assault and you have portion portions of the offense that are in defense. Yeah. It, it's just an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely, yeah, play to play, it's different. Yeah, yeah, even run plays versus versus pass plays and whatnot. You're you're kind of have a different mindset every time. Wasn't there a situation with Sig Optics where you guys had to like knock down a wall to get some equipment into the building? Uh I'm trying to think. No, we didn't. We didn't knock down a wall. We had to take a big window out. Gotcha. And, well, so I mean, it's it's a glass wall, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, we, we had to bring uh, we had to bring some equipment. We have our clean room, which is a really it's a, it's a big clean room on our second floor, kind of in the middle, and um, and then also we got a bunch of uh, optical metrology equipment and stuff up there. So I think all of that stuff came in through a window, which is now where our, all of our double E's sit, kind of a little nerd pit. Double E's, uh, electric electrical engineers. Electro 
electrical yeah. engineers. Yeah. yeah, those guys are nerds. Big, really nerds. And I mean big, that in like big, the big nicest brains. way. Yeah. yeah. Big brains. Yeah, real mathers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So good people. Just, it's like, that's why I have a job. I talk to them so that the customers don't have to. Type thing. <laughs> Get a red stapler. Yeah. Uh, um, so what optics are made there in Wilsonville? Oh, we make all types of stuff. Uh, we were actually just doing a presentation on this. And I think we're at like 47% of our stuff is made there right now. And we're slowly transitioning to more and more. So, um, we make a lot of red dots there, a ton of red dots. Um, we're assembling all of the Tango 6T rifle scopes there. Um, so all those contracts that we've won, they're, they're all being done in that clean room. Lots of lights, lots of lasers are being done there. Our Juliet's, um, we do some red dots, like uh, closed red dots, Romeo 4T, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What contract are you talking about with a Tango 6? Uh, we have two contracts. We have a, a, a contract with SOCOM, which is a second focal plane Tango 6T. And then we uh, recently won a direct view contract, direct view optic. So Devo is what we all call it or everyone's calling it. Um, that's a contract with the Army's running the contract, but it, the scopes are going to the Air Force. So um, that's a first focal plane Tango 6T. And then we also... Um, it's not technically a contract, but they selected the Tango 6T for the SDMR program. Hmm. So they're putting those on all those HK762 uh, rifles. So Special Operations is using the, the Tango 1-6? to Yep. That's a yep. great scope. It's a really, really nice scope. Yeah. I just This is the first time I've ever got to look at one. Yeah. Um, Patrick had one on his rifle, and that's a very practical scope you can get a lot of miles out of a Tango 1-6. to Yeah. Yeah, the 1-6 to is a, a really, I mean... 15 years ago, 6X zoom was like, holy cow. Yeah. Oh, my God. And now you're seeing, you know, 10, 12X zoom scopes out there on the market. Um, competitors have 10X zooms. And it's kind of just a give and Let, take. Let's clarify what 10X zoom is um, because I think a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to think um, that a scope only goes to 10 power. Yeah. Yeah. So inside of a scope, you have an erector system. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you're moving lenses in there and that changes the magnification of the scope. Okay. So, um, the erector is also used for windage and elevation adjustments, but, um, so you're moving, uh, those lenses and it's adding or subtracting, not subtracting, but it's, it's changing the magnification of the optical system. So if and, you have a six X zoom, that means you can go from one to six or yeah. two to 12 or yeah. three to 18. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We also, we, yeah, I mean, we call it like a six to one system is what we call it. Yeah. Um, and so you'll use that same erector in, in a one to six and a three to 18, like you're saying, and you're just changing the objective at that point. Yeah. And the objectives that obviously that front lens. Gotcha. So, so you'll start at, you know, whatever magnification you want, you could do a, a two and a half to 18 if you want, or two and a half to 15, I think it would be so. Well, let's, let's go ahead and break down some of the, the features of a rifle scope and kind of go from, from one end of it to the other and, and talk about some of that stuff because it does get confusing. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of features, and some of it can feel sort of like marketing. Um, other portions of it you know, really appeal to a specific type of user, mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of people just don't understand, so let's kind of break it down. Which direction you want to go, front to back, back to front? I think front to back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Move. yeah, you got the objective lens up there, and that's kind of setting your, uh, kind of like what we were talking about. You, you're adjusting so, your focal length with that. In this world, the front, is that the barrel end or is that the yeah, butt? Yeah, it's away from, the, yeah, away from the user. Okay. Yeah. The other side is called the ocular because of the ocular like eyes. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, we're on the, we're on the, the barrel end of, of the scope. And yep. We've got the objective lens. Yep. Yeah, so you got the objective lens uh, that's setting your focal length, which is going to essentially set where your base of your magnification is. Okay. So um, the other thing you're doing is you're sizing that thing diameter-wise, mm -hmm. um, and that's going to affect your exit pupil. Okay. And a lot of people, it's kind of semantics, but having a bigger objective does not give you more light transmission. It gives you a bigger exit pupil, which allows more light in total, kind of like area under the curve type thing 
to pass through the system. And exit pupil gets measured in millimeters. Yep. And the human eye can see somewhere between four and eight millimeters. Uh, the human eye can dilate to okay. roughly four and eight millimeters. Yeah. Okay. So your pupil in your eye yeah. is, I mean, when it gets real dark out, you get big wide pupils. So okay. if, if you have more than eight millimeters of exit pupil, mm-hmm. it's wasted on your eye, right? Uh, it's wasted from a, uh, a light standpoint. It's not wasted. We were kind of talking about this the other day. It's not wasted in the sense of ease of use. Okay. So that's your column of light back there where everything's focused. And uh, if you have a big exit pupil, it's going to be really easy to get behind that scope. Okay. So if you have 11X or 11 millimeter exit pupil, you got a lot of head movement area that you can get back there. Right. So you have eye relief, which is the distance that your eye is from the scope in mm-hmm. order to be able to see a, a full and clear image through it. Mm-hmm. And then you have the eye box, which is sort of the size of that cone that your eye can be inside that cone of, of clear light coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Eye box is uh, kind of a marketing term. Our, uh, if Brad Brumfield listens to this, he, he wouldn't even want me talking about it because it's not really an optical term. Okay. But What um, would be the... What term should I be using? It's a mix between exit pupil and um, eye relief. Okay. Because essentially you have light trays, light traces passing each other there, and they become focused at that eye relief distance. And the diameter of, of that cone of light is your exit pupil diameter. So it there's not really a front and back change for eye box. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So objective lens... Um, can be big, can be small, changes the exit pupil, changes the focal length. Yep. Another give, I mean, another, the, so it's like, why wouldn't we just use massive object, objective lenses? Sure. And it's just weight. Yeah. You know, it's weight, ease of use. Um, if you have a real big objective lens, it's going to make mounting the scope lower to the rifle a little bit more difficult as well. Loophole did a product a long time ago. It's, I don't think surround anymore, but. Um, where they cut out the bottom of that so you can still mount it down low, mm-hmm. but you're still getting the benefits of, of uh, that larger diameter yeah. lens. So, Why do you want the scope to be close to the rifle? Uh, it's just for a lot of people, it's, uh, it's cheek weld. So you want to be able to have a consistent cheek weld. Um, I would say most people aren't good at setting parallax. So that's not really a huge issue as long as you, if you have a consistent cheek weld, you're not going to see the effects of parallax. Cause that's only when you're moving and mm-hmm. you're changing your head position. And, um, just the way most rifles were built, especially, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, before we had like chassis rifles and adjustable cheek pieces, like our cross has and everything. Um, you just had those real straight stocks in the back. So you, you wanted to get down and be able to have that consistent cheek weld. So what else do we have in the scope? Do we go straight into the tube? <clears throat> uh, we can talk about main tubes. I mean, that's obviously part of it. I mean, main tubes are kind of misunderstood. Everyone, not everyone, a lot of people believe that a bigger main tube diameter is going to give you more light transmission, and it's not. Um, it's primarily just travel inside of that scope because you have you have that erector we talked about earlier and uh you got to move that up and down left and right to get your travel and the more room in there that you have to move it the more room you're gonna more travel you're gonna get so, so when you're saying simple. travel you're talking about like adjusting a turret <clears throat> say i'm going to take a longer range shot and i want to you know adjust 15 mils or yeah 25 mils yeah. inside this turret if i have a one inch scope tube, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. 30 millimeter scope tube, I can get a little bit more. 34 millimeter yeah. main tube, I can get quite a bit more. Yeah. The only way you could do that is if you had a really tiny erector in there, which you start giving, giving away optical yep. performance that way. So, gotcha. which is field of view, stuff like that. Okay. So then what happens? <clears throat> well, so we didn't really talk about side focuses hmm. um, because that would be the next lens element at least in there but um side focus we typically are going to do side focuses on scopes that are more than 12x mm-hmm. um once you get below that a lot of people have asked oh why don't you do like a one to ten or one to six one to eight with a side focus on there and it's, when you do that you're moving that 
side, that focusing lens so small mm-hmm. that it, you're not going to see the benefits of it. Yeah. So you just need to collimate that system at a, uh, at a usable yardage and, and not worry about side focus on yeah. those one powers. Um, yeah. So moving back from a side focus, you got that. And then obviously adjustments. Mm-hmm. So you can do capped, you can do exposed, you can do capped windage, exposed elevation. It's kind of the new in vogue thing. Cause people are typically holding for wind, which, um, that works real well if you're in a first focal plane scope. So you got that reticle in the first focal plane and it's, um, the subtension stay consistent throughout your zoom range. But, uh, it's a little bit more difficult on a second focal plane scope holding for wind. You got to be on high power. What's a subtension? Subtension is essentially how much of your image that, uh, your reticle is covering. So you might say, uh, you know, I got one MOA ticks on my reticle. What that means is when you look at it at an image, so, or at your target, it's covering up one inch in between those ticks. So it's, it's, it's how people used to mill stuff for range finders were pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or if you, your range finder goes down yeah. or something like that. So, so sub tensions, when we're looking at a reticle and if it's the type of reticle that has, um, you know, hash marks going vertically and horizontally mm-hmm. inside the reticle. If you have a first focal plane reticle, then mm-hmm. those subtensions will remain the same distance apart throughout all ranges of magnification, but the lines will get thicker as you zoom in and thinner as you zoom out. Correct. They, so the best way I've, I've found to describe this is that reticle is in the front of the erector. That's why they call it first focal plane. And essentially all the zoom is happening behind that. So you're zooming in on your reticle and the image at the same time. Yeah. So they stay consistent, which is really great if you're using those ticks for holdover or milling things. Yeah. And when we're talking about milling, what we mean is if you know the size of an object, then we have this reticle inside of our scope that um, either has minutes of angle or has mill radian and we can look at a chart and be like, okay, we know that that object is one meter. Yep. And okay, it looks like it is one mil inside this scope. I now know that that object is a thousand meters away. Correct. Yeah. Or it gives I, you a good rough estimate for range. Yeah. Or if I know the distance, then I can also use this system to tell the size of something. And that's useful for hunters mm-hmm. if they're going to try and figure out, okay, is, is that buck... 36 inches wide. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he's 500 yards away, covers up one mil. He's 36 inches wide. Yeah. Dang. We need to get, go are, get a little bit closer and are, shoot that thing. Those are better hunters than me. <laughs> First legal thing I see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've used mill reticles a lot to, um, to score animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used mill reticles in, in the Marine Corps in the tank to determine the distance and size of objects. Well, as long as I knew one or the other, and it's something that I practiced a lot. And if you do practice it and get good at it, you can absolutely, um, score an, an elk with a reticle. Mm-hmm. So, um, a few years ago I got to watch a bull for, I don't know, 45 minutes or something before he got up and offered a shot. Mm-hmm. And I had a little mill dot master and, you know, I didn't have anything better to do. So I tried to score him and I scored him a 322 and got up and I shot him and we scored him and he scored 322. That was lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, I was going to get close. You know, it, it is an ability that you have with that. And I, I love hunting with, with those types of reticles. A lot of people kind of get, get turned off and they think that it's too busy and it's too much for them to look at. Um, to that, I would say that's, that's fine if that's not your style, but it's definitely a tool that's available. And with a little bit of training, like with any tool, um, mm-hmm. you can get some good use out of it. Yeah. You definitely gotta get comfortable with the, yeah. the reticle in fact, yeah. your whole system, you know? Um, so turrets move, uh, do they move a lens up and down. Do they move the erector? They move that whole erector. Yeah. Okay. So the whole erector's in there moving. Gotcha. Yeah. What comes after turrets? I mean, the erector. So, yeah. I mean, that's what we were talking about earlier. That's where you're getting all your uh, zoom mag- magnification and everything in there. Mm-hmm. Um, reticles are on the erector, either the front or the second, focal plane on the back. 
Um, is one more expensive to build than another? Yeah. The, um, the f- front focal plane reticles are, are more expensive to build for sure. You Why is a, that? You're working with stuff that's much f- uh, finer. So like that reticle, mm-hmm. if you have a 6X erector, mm-hmm. it's going to be six times smaller on the front focal plane than it is on the rear focal plane. Okay. So you got a lot smaller feature sizes and stuff like that. Have to be a little bit more precise. Yeah. Yeah. They're a little bit more difficult collimating, centering, stuff like that. Um, so is, is that why we see first focal plane scopes costing more money? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Is it a lot more to build? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's a, it's a significant amount more. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly. I mean, most of that goes into the reticle. Yeah. So interesting. What's the reticle actually made of? Uh, it depends. So on a, you can do glass reticles. So you have a glass, a sheet of glass up there. You etch it. You can fill it. You can, um, you can fill it with special materials that reflect light. That's how you're getting illuminated reticles. Mm-hmm. So you're shining light up the side of it. Um, and then on the second focal plane, you can still do the same thing. Uh, it's just like I was saying earlier, it's going to be bigger. Or you can do um, metal reticles back there. They used to make them. Way back in the day, uh, they used to make them out of spider web. Really? Yeah, I think Leupold had Black Widow spiders until like the mid-90s. Wow. Yeah. Were they ever made out of hairs, cross hairs? I'm sure someone did. Yeah. Not not that I'm ever... I, I can't give you any, any yeah. examples, but that that would... that. That's definitely would make sense. something that I wondered about if, if the first cross hairs were actually like horse hair or something like that. Yeah. I mean... It's just a silhouette that you're looking past, yeah. you know, and you're using it as a, a reference point for aiming a gun. So yeah. it's in the simplest terms, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, that's the nice thing about second focal plane, uh, reticles is, I mean, you can, we run fiber optic up them and illuminate the center dot with that. And, uh, you can get a really bright center dot, mm-hmm. which is, it's really important on like those one to sixes that we were talking about. Yeah. So it's almost like using a red dot. You throw it down on one, it's like using a red dot, essentially. Other than the fact you got, you still have your exit pupil and eye relief to deal with, which aren't really issues on red dots. Right. So, And a black reticle in low light against a black object or a dark object um, can be very difficult, if not impossible, to see. So if yeah. you have some type of illumination, you know, you can still be within legal shooting light and say you're black bear hunting or, or you're hunting a, a bull elk that's all muddy or who mm-hmm. knows what. Um, a lot more ethical for you to be able to, to see a little bit of light to know exactly where your crosshairs are. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And, uh, you know, we run into this stuff all the time where people feel like a technology offers an unfair advantage. And, you know, in, in my mind, I want to exploit every technical and tactical advantage in order to increase my lethality my morality and effectiveness in making sure that I can provide the absolute cleanest and quickest death possible to the animal that I'm hunting. Yeah. So, yeah. And and that's funny. Like with some of our systems, like our BDX systems, we've run into state legality issues Mm -hmm. and just various and it's ever changing, you know, every year late summer, we're always kind of on edge like, Oh God, what state's going to try to ban us or or do what? And uh, it's interesting because from our viewpoint, we, we feel like we've made it more ethical yeah. for them. You know, we have, uh, we're doing everything in the scope and with the range finder that customers and users are still going to go out and do and do legally, but we're just taking away some of the, some of the error, you know, some of the possibility for error. You know, if, if you're, uh, if you're dialing your scope, you can easily have an extra rotation of dial or an extra rotation of elevation dial in there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and not know it. So I feel like with, uh, with BDX, we've, we've taken some of that potential points for error out, you know, Mm -hmm. or like you mill, you, you range something and and the range finder tells you, you need 5.3 mils to shoot that target and you dial 3.5 or whatever, you know, there's, there's all types of, errors that you can do and we're just kind of taking some of those links out and you can also <clears throat> utilize this technology to give yourself a, a governor like kinetic yeah right so yeah. you can say okay i need 1800 foot pounds of energy um in order to you know 
absolutely and effectively kill his target. Yeah. Um, you know, or you can base, can you use energy or velocity? Like, yeah. How, yeah. How does so that work? You set that all in the app and you essentially will pick whether, which one you want to use. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's a whole, probably another podcast. You could talk to some projectile maker on which one matters more, but, um, we wanted to give people both options with it. So you can set it to velocity or you can set it to kinetic energy essentially. So, so then like, you know, pick, pick your number. If I go and I range that, that deer and it is beyond the range that, you know, I've considered to be, you know, absolutely lethal and effective for this bullet. What's the scope going to do? What's the range finder going to do? So, well, first what happens, uh, the, the reason we're able to do this is because our range finders are running those ballistics and they have, uh, terminal ballistic information. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they all run off apply ballistics and, and it's a, that's one of the outputs it can spit out. And, uh, so essentially it, it ranges that, that target and says, you know, or in this case, you're saying a deer and it's saying at this distance, it's going to have this much energy left. And, uh, what it does is it will tell that to the, to the rifle scope and the rifle scope will, if it's below the threshold and, um, and it, below the threshold that the user sets, it slowly blinks the dot for you. So it doesn't take away your dot, but it's just giving you an indicator that you should probably move in a little yeah. bit closer. Yeah. So that's really cool that you can use that technology to do incredibly advanced rocket science math yeah. in the field to make sure that you are not going to accidentally take a shot that's beyond the capabilities of your munition. Yeah. And and like I was saying earlier, it's people could print out dope charts for decades, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they could have already had that information, but I don't know many guys who are, who are out there rolling a dope chart that has terminal ballistic information on it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I will do a podcast in the future and, and we'll talk about, uh, what, what that means on the animal end of a shot. Yeah. That velocity and that foot pounds of energy and, and the types of projectiles and stuff like that. Promise, folks, I'll get that one to you. I'm just, oh, okay. I'm just creating work for you. So we're moving. Uh, we're moving back to the other end of the scope. Still, uh, we've got we've got a, a magnification dial or magnification ring. What do we call that? Yeah, I call it power select ring. Power so select PSR. Ring. Yeah, um, that sounds cool. When you say people PSR. call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a government contract. Uh-huh. Acronym, <laughs> acronyms are, make anybody cooler. Um. Yeah, I mean, people call it zoom rings, yeah. whatever whatever people want to call it. It doesn't really matter. It still does the same thing. Essentially, there's a little pin that goes down from that into your erector, and when you rotate that, it's going to rotate those lenses in a cam, and that's what you get the lens movement that's going to change your magnification. Oh, really? Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. I always thought that it was like sliding it back and forth in there somehow. Well, that that is what it's doing, but okay. it's turning that rotational movement into forward and back via a cam. Oh, okay. Got it. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So okay. there's, there's usually two, two, uh, lenses inside the erector that are moving. Interesting. Yeah. So, Neat. and then, uh, yeah, back behind that, you got your eyepiece, um, adopter adjustment back there, which people get really confused about a lot. I, every time I look at a scope and it's slammed all the way down, it's either someone who's should have it that way and is pretty old or someone who doesn't really know how that thing works. Right. So, um, so that diopter adjustment, when you get your new scope out of the box, mm-hmm. when I get my new scope out of the box, before I throw it on rings, anything, I will point it at a blank wall and then adjust that diopter until I have a really crisp reticle view of the reticle. Yep. Yep. And then I never touch it again. That's exactly how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> I don't know if that's how everyone does it. <laughs> <laughs> um, another Another uh, little pro tip for you. If you're trying to move that PSR, that power selector ring, mm-hmm. and it doesn't want to move, chances are you have tightened your rings down too much and you're crushing your main tube. <laughs> and Th- I've, that's, I've definitely seen that. There's happen. potential for that. I see that more on uh, on side focuses. Yeah. Because you have um, a similar thing happening on a side focus. Right. And so if you're trying to adjust your side focus and it's like, you might even get a little bit of movement and then it stops. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, I don't know where they're getting it from, but they will slam their 
front ring all the way up against their turret bell housing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can definitely crunch down on it yeah. if you put too much torque. Uh, we, we give torque specs on stuff, but I don't think, uh, I don't well, think most people are busting the torque wrenches out. Not everybody has a torque wrench. Yeah. Yeah. So if they're just using the Allen key that, you know, that probably came with their rings or whatever, um, you know, what's their sort of rule of thumb for tightening if, if that's all they have? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's 25 inch pounds. So I usually get them snug and then a quarter turn. Yeah. So that's pretty good rule of thumb for that. doesn't take as much as what people think. No, no, but you do want to do them even. It's yeah. kind of that star pattern. Yeah. Um, kind of like lug nuts. Yep. So helpful. That's a lot of information. That's a lot of information that people probably don't know about scopes. Yeah. That we just went through. Hopefully. Yeah. That's good. All right. If you've got more questions about the actual guts of a scope, go ahead and send them on in and I'll get them answered for you. What is uh, sort of the, the state of the union of Sig Sauer electro optics today? we're growing, growing real fast. I think we're at 130 people right now. We got 20 wow. open positions. Most of them are in assembly manufacturing, stuff 20, like that. 20 open positions. Yeah. So who do you need? Maybe uh, somebody's listening and wants a job. Yeah. Assembly manufacturing. If mm-hmm. you're detail oriented and you care about the work you do. Yeah. Apply to six hour electro optics. Nice. In Wilsonville. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, that'd be a cool job for somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, uh, I would say right now the market's crazy yeah. with, with kind of the things we've talked about, the trifecta of this year and pandemics and it's election year. And then we had civil unrest and all that jazz. Um, it's just kind of the um, perfect storm for the firearms industry in general. Yeah. And optics definitely is along for that ride. So I, I think if you talk to all of our competitors, they're doing real well too. But uh I would say we've had a very, very good year. This Devo wins a, a no, kind of another icing on the cake for us for this year. So, yeah, that's a big deal. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, it it just warms my heart to know that our our operators are getting really high quality equipment. Yeah, they freaking deserve it. They need it. Yep. Um, you know, we need to continue to be the scariest thing in the world. Um, for people who oppose what America stands for. And if, you know, if you can build and provide an optic that, that helps these scary men do their jobs. Then yeah. That's, yeah. That's I hope awesome. we can do our part. I think we're doing a good job. They seem to like our stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, within the hunting side of the house, the first thing that I saw from SIG were rangefinders, mm-hmm. And I think that really sort of surprised a lot of people and then they picked them up and they saw how fast these things were ranging and how far and accurately they're ranging. And that was something that they'd never really experienced before. And then they started to look into a little bit more. Yeah. But there's some, um, you know, you make binoculars, spotting scopes, red dots, pretty much every rifle scopes, every optical category. Yeah. We have it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the new products that are coming out? Like, let's talk about some of the stuff that's getting released, like, right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we, we just went live with the uh, Zulu 6 image stabilized binocular, mm-hmm. which is um, a really, really cool product. Uh, we've, we've had the image stabilized monocular for a while. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like looking just one eye on things, even even yep. range finders. I, I always prefer to have, I mean, I got two eyes. I'd like to use them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's just such a nice experience using those, those Zulu sixes. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. So we got 10 by thirties and, and 16 by 42s. And, um, I mean, those high mag binos aren't new, but being able to handhold them the way you can because of the image stabilization is just an incredible feature. So I've been using the 10 powers since April Mm -hmm. and that means that I've probably been on 80 hunts or so in that amount of time and then a few competitions and then just like daily use and scouting and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Haven't broken them and there are prototypes. So I typically, there's a lot of 3d printed stuff on them. I typically break prototypes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Haven't, haven't broken these things and they're absolutely 
the biggest game changer for me for any anything this year. And people have been Instagram followers have been listening to me talk about these for quite a while now. And basically, when you um, turn these things on, there's a couple of gyroscopes in there that actually stabilize the image so that when you're looking at it, it is more stable than what you're used to seeing on a tripod. And people have a hard time hearing that from me. But the reality is with a tripod, there's typically some wind going on. So um, there's going to be some vibrations and stuff like that. And then when you're panning and moving the tripod um, or, or moving the optic on the tripod, that pan isn't ever going to be super smooth. You're not really going to be able to see while you're transitioning from one place to the next. Mm -hmm. And these binoculars will make a smooth transition. So you'll actually see them seem like they're lagging behind a little bit, but it's just making it so that it's smooth. And some of the big deals for me is that I'm way more efficient when I glass a hillside. Um, I can get through it much faster um, with with these binos than I can with a spotter mm -hmm. or, or with anything um, on a tripod. I can use them one-handed, so I don't have to set my bow or my rifle on the ground. Um, I can just pick them up, and I it's sure enough rock-solid steady, and I can see. Um, and then another thing is that the human eye is built to identify movement. Mm-hmm. And if you are shaking a little bit when you're holding um, just optical binoculars, you can't necessarily see a small movement that's within your field of view. Yeah, like everything's if, moving. Right, everything's yeah. moving. Yeah. So if you know when I have these stabilized binoculars, I mean it's it's just steady, and if a deer flicks its ear, I can pick that up. Yeah. And every mule deer hunter, you know, knows how important that movement is. Yeah. To, to finding that animal. Yeah. The first time I hand them to someone, I like to tell them, you know, look at something that you just, just barely cannot make out. And it's, I mean, if you're in a city, it's, it's pretty easy. You can look at like a air conditioning unit across the, the road at a building or something and, and read text, like read the 1-800 number or something on there. And they just, you just barely can't read it. And then you flip that switch and it's like, it's like all those movies where the guy goes into the zone right. and everything's like super focused. And uh, it's a really cool, really cool experience to see their faces every time. It's like 100% of the time it works every time. And these things are little. Like the 10 powers yeah. weigh 18.1 ounces, I think is what I weighed them at. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the 16s, I think, are just 21 or so. Amazing. Yeah. And a lot of the 15, 16 power binoculars that we see out there now are well over 30 ounces. Yeah. So you're saving a significant amount of weight and then the weight that you're saving by not having to bring a tripod with you yeah. is huge. If you're in a situation where you don't need a tripod, I yeah. typically bring one to shoot off of anyhow, but yeah, I, I always, I mean, I, up until these things, I, I've always hunted with uh, tripod and binos off the tripod mm -hmm. and it's, it's just a little bit of a hassle sometimes yeah. setting up the spot, you know, yeah. you're not stopping on the trail side and like what we were talking about earlier, I'm not a, tree stand hunter, but I can't imagine setting a tripod up in a tree stand. Yeah. So yeah. Glassing from, from a tree stand is, is huge, especially if you're in a situation like this, where there are places that you can see a couple hundred yards. Um, and like being able to detect an animal that's moving around so that you can get good and ready. That's huge. That makes all the difference. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to John about it because he was using them in, in uh, Oregon on his hunt this year. And he was talking about, you know, you crest that hill that you just saw an animal and you're, you're going down and up to get it. And you're cresting that hill and you're out of breath. You're huffing and puffing. It's, it takes all that out of it, you know. Yeah. So, and you're not going to take that out even on a tripod. Right. And I'll give you an example of, of efficiency. I sat down on a hillside to glass for sheds with a buddy of mine this year. And I handed him my Zulu 6 binos. And I sat down and started to take out my tripod and put on a spotter. Mm -hmm. um, and he found three elk sheds over a mile away on the opposing hillside before I had my spotting scope set up and was glassing through it. And it's like, okay, well, obviously this hillside is just absolutely covered in sheds. <laughs> and we sat there uh, for another half an hour and that was it. He found what there was to find before I had my spotter ready to go. Yep. That's, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Did you switch with him after that? 
uh, yeah, I took my stuff back. <laughs> no. And it was super steep, and I was kind of mad that we found him over there, but so we had to spend the rest of the day going to get the stupid things. Uh, Echo 3. Yeah. Echo 3 is a really cool product. You know, we, we had, uh, I think it was three years ago, we had our Echo 1 uh, thermal reflex site. So it's, it starts at one power, which is kind of different from a lot of ther- uh, thermal sites. Uh, nice thing is, I mean, you got that big screen there. You don't have to get down on the gun and uh, and put your eye up to like some weird sock looking thing like a lot of mm-hmm. uh, thermal sites have. With some boot, you know. And uh, it the Echo 3 is kind of the evolution to everything that we learned from the Echo 1. I'd say we, we have a higher resolution uh, display on it, so... You're not taking a DVD player and watching a watching a video in a black and white on it anymore. Right. It's got a nice high resolution display on there. Um, it's a one to six now. You get more magnification on it. Uh, we put a throw lever on because the objective you focus mm-hmm. the objective based off the distance that you're looking at, and there's a little throw lever on there which is pretty nice. Uh, Makes you, it super quick. Yeah, you can stream video. You can stream uh, transmit. Uh, uh, images and everything off of the device. It's, I think it's got, I think Brad was running that project. He, I think he says it's got uh, 13 gigs of storage on it. So, wow. Yeah. It's BDX enabled. Amazing. Yeah. When people think thermals, and this is a funny thing to me, uh, coming from a military background, tank background, where I lived looking at a thermal. Like yeah. That was my entire life was looking at a thermal. They just think of it as a nighttime thing. Yeah. And that is... Not at all the case. Thermals are an incredibly powerful tool. It sees a different portion of the light spectrum. Yeah. And uh, they're very, very powerful in in daylight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just looking for differences in heat signature. So yeah. It's pretty pretty simple. It works during the daytime, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. I I don't know. It's pretty cool. When we were looking... Um, we, we had a prototype out at the show. So a lot of people that came through the booths and the shows last year got to look through one and, and play with it a little bit. And they're really neat. I think uh, about 25 coyotes uh, pays for an Echo 3. Yeah. So yep. if, you're, if you're a coyote hunter, um, you know, keep in mind that, that uh, this, is, this is an item that can enable you to make a little bit of money if you kill 26 coyotes. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, then you're in the green. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's practically an investment. Yeah. Um, but it is a really neat neat optic, and it's it's just little. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And it, like I was saying, it's just the comfort of using it, especially yeah. when you're in uh, – when you are using it in those lower light situations. You're not slammed down there on it. You have a little bit more uh, awareness, yeah. you know, uh, around you and everything. So it's a it's a – pretty cool product and this has a qd mount built into it yeah yeah that's the other thing our old one had a half inch hex on it which is great but it's not very uh convenient for the users so you can pop this thing off of your picatinny rail and use it just a glass with yeah and then throw it right back on your gun and roll yeah yeah it's got good return to zero on there with that qd so yeah, yeah that shouldn't be an issue at all and i think that a lot of a lot of coyote hunters and and hog hunters and stuff like that, they have that issue where they want to be, they don't want to point their gun at everything that they're looking at at night. That's cumbersome. Um, kind of dangerous too. It's dangerous, right? So if you can just pop this thing off and you've got this little handheld unit that you can use to glass with, and it's like, okay, there's something I'm interested in having a different type of relationship with. Yeah. Slap it right back on the gun, throw one lever, and uh, now you're lethal. Yep. Pretty freaking cool. Okay, next thing I want to ask you about is the Romeo line. So th- this is the red dot line of optics. Yeah. And there's a grip of them. Like we start at Romeo zero and then we go up from there. Um, what, what am I looking at? Like yeah. wh- where do we start? Like what does a Romeo zero do? What does a Romeo four do? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's kind of a funny deal. I mean, all, all of our n- naming structure is essentially the phonetic alphabet. Mm-hmm. R, Romeo. It's real simple. They're, yeah. they're, they're, we just did red dots that way, yeah. you know? And, uh, and I mean, we can go straight up the, the list of them. Essentially, we, we have zero, one, two, three, four, five. Used to have a six. We have sevens. Yeah. Have an eight. Well, let, let's logic do it. Just, would, logic would tell you we're going to have a nine. So. Just, just, uh, just tell me what each of them 
is good at. Yeah. So the Romeo zero, uh, that's one of the products we're, we're making in house, um, doing tens of thousand a month, you know, Mm -hmm. just tons of these things. It is a very small miniature, uh, reflex site that's Mm going to go onto a, uh, like our carry pistol, like our 365. Yep. We even ship guns with them yep. already installed on them. So it's, it's perfect for that. It's, it's for that slim carry gun. Installed inside a dent, right? Yeah. 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 That's pretty dope. Yeah. And, um, so that's what that product is. The Romeo one. So we have Romeo one pros now. Um, and we started with a Romeo one, which had kind of a proprietary footprint on it. Uh, Romeo one pro went to more of an industry standard footprint. It's that DP pro mm-hmm. from, uh, from loophole. It's mm-hmm. kind of their same footprint. Uh, reason we did that is because on our M 17 gun, it, it was cut for that. So we decided we need to have a red dot that works with it. Here we are with the Romeo one pro. Yep. Uh, Romeo two is a product that will be out. You know, it's, it's not fully on the street. You, you'll be able to find stuff in literature printed and whatnot. But, um, what that is, is kind of our no excuses red dot. It's super, super, uh, robust and, uh, durable. We we've dropped it from 15 feet and had no problems with it. I don't think we're telling people to drop it from 15 feet, but we've tested it at, at those. Yeah. Uh, and, um, tougher nails. Yeah. And that's what we call our, a, a modular red dot. So you can convert it from a reflex site to a, a closed red dot as well with a shroud. And there's an acrylic lens that you put on the back. Which is huge for a guy that wants to have a red dot while he's out in the field hunting, keep snow, dirt. Yeah, we had that discussion when we were elk hunting. You were yeah. talking about how you were you were uh, apprehensive to go to a red dot on your uh, on your two twenty. Yeah, because you didn't want to get dirt or snow or rain or anything in that emitter, which can happen. Um, if you block that light, you're not going to have a yeah a, an aiming point. So, right. but yeah, so this kind of solves that problem. It is uh, it's going to be ten mil. Safe, essentially. Nice. So 10 mil guns just destroy red dots. But not the Romeo 2. Not the Romeo 2. That's going to be your Huckleberry. That sounds so. like my, my style. Yeah. Like, this is the this is the Marine Corps version. Like, Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about making things Marine-proof the it, other day. <laughs> it's, it's, it's willing to get dirty. It's hard to break. Yeah. People are going to want to steal it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a... Uh, that's something that that'll be kind of early next year. Okay. I'm ta- it's not on our website or anything like that, but yeah. if you type in save Romeo too, you'll find photos and oh, pictures and stuff. Insider information. I it, like, I don't even feel like it's insider cause it's, it's, it's on the street. Okay. It's kind of out there. Yeah. But, um, I look forward to trying one. Just can't buy it yet. The, um, so next Romeo three, that's another open reflex site. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really beautiful glass on this thing. Yeah. It's, it's a, a competition. It started with our, our standard Romeo three. And then, uh, two years ago we launched the Romeo three max and the Romeo three XL, which was kind of a funny deal. Um, we developed both and max liked the round one and we still like the, the more square one. So mm-hmm. we, we decided, hell let's launch them both. Yeah. So, um, they've done really well for them. We can't keep them in stock. And I mean, max could probably win with, uh, with a straw on his gun, he's that good. Right. But, um, but he really likes this site and it's done really well. Yeah. So Romeo three is what I compete with too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful site. So it's got an A sphere in there, which, um, it's just a better optical system yeah. that way. Yeah. So, uh, Romeo four, that is our, um, that's a closed red dot. So that's more something you're going to see on an AR. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done very well again, military contracts and whatnot yeah. with that one as well. Uh, we got three flavors of it, uh, an S an H and a T the H, uh, was kind of more of a hunting. You can put it on a shotgun. It's, uh, it's a little bit less durable. It's made out of 6061 instead of 7075. Um, different types of aluminum. Yeah. Different materials. Okay. Um, it's got a little bit different. I think that one's IPX seven and the T is IPX eight. I don't know uh, what that's, that means. That's waterproof rating. Oh Yeah. So, um, most guys hunting don't need to be diving with their shotguns. Yeah, they do. Sure. But they, they don't. Mm-hmm. And, um, the S is just a solar variant of the H. Okay. So, yeah, I think that's what I have and I have a magnifier behind it. Yeah. And you got the, uh, do you know which reticle you have in yours? Cause we have, we call them quad reticles, but we have a circle plex and, um, and a circle dot variant. 
And then we call them quad reticles because there's four different reticle settings and variations you can set it in. Yeah. So. No, it's, it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous little optic. Yeah. 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 That, that's, it's fast. Like that's a great choice for ARs. And then if you put a magnifier on it, um, man, you can really shoot a long ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, amazing. Yeah. And I mean, we have, uh, right now we have four different magnifiers, uh, we have a Juliet three, Juliet four, Juliet six. So what's changing there is just magnification yep. f- for all of them. Um, and then we have our, our Juliet micro, which yeah. is like a really small, um, less expensive, but it's a, a pretty cool little, uh, magnifier. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that for, let's say, let's say that you're hunting with an AR of, of any, any variety and you're going to be. 300 yards and in with, uh, with a four power magnifier and, and a red dot. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. You can do anything with it. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And they got QD mounts. If you don't want it on there, rip it off. Yeah. You don't have to worry about return to zero on that. You're just magnifying your point aim. So there's no shift there. Yeah. When, um, people think that they're, when they're zeroing magnifiers, they're changing their point aim, point impact. You're not, you're just, shifting where that reticle is inside your field of view of the magnifier. Yeah. So, so that's Romeo four. After that, we got Romeo five, mm-hmm. which is an imported red dot. And it's just an awesome, awesome value. Uh, we do tonnage of that type of product. Yeah. Uh, we do really well with that one. Kind of in that same breath, we have our Romeo MSR, which is another, I mean, it's, it's made to go on AR style rifles. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of just a, uh, a great value red dot. Yeah. So don't have the Romeo six anymore. And then, uh, we have the Romeo seven. So it's just kind of a different flavor for every, what's the seven do. The seven is, a, um, it's a larger, it, it's a little bit larger red dot. Okay. So it looks like those old aim points gotcha. that, that you had in the Marines. Probably. I didn't, that's army stuff. Oh yeah. So yeah. yeah. Well, you've seen the army guys. I have probably jealous of them. So, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to shoot uh, with less accuracy than the Marines? <laughs> I don't have a, uh, a dog in this fight. <laughs> I'll, we I'll, like them all. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I have army friends that can shoot the pants off me. I just uh, don't don't shoot with them, and then I get to win. Well, so that that's that's cool. All right, um, next subject. Hunting versus tactical on rifle scopes. Yeah. I tend to hunt with tactical rifle scopes. Yeah. So I really like the Tango 6 line of scopes. They're, they're heavy, which um, there's some durability that comes with that weight. Mm-hmm. Tremendous optical clarity. They're first, fo- first focal plane. Um, I have reticles that can allow me to use the reticle for all kinds of elevation and windage holds. And I have turrets that I can use for the same purpose if I have the time to allow that. And then it also allows me to compete and hunt with the same scope all year. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's my style. But there are features that are better for most hunters than the features that I'm using. So how do you sort of differentiate a hunting line of scope like the whiskey line mm-hmm. from a, a tactical scope like the tango line. Yeah. So, I mean, f- any rifle scope, as, as you've just pointed out, can be used for either of them. You could take one of our whiskey scopes and use it in a tactical scenario, or you could use one of our tango scopes in a hunting scenario. It's, it's the scope's a scope yep. type thing. Um, just kind of the different features and benefits that those different users are looking for. So, um, our hunting scopes tend to be second focal plane. The reason is that, um, most hunters are rolling around the woods on low power. Mm -hmm. They want to be on low power. You have a quick snapshot. You want to be able to pull that scope up and have a nice reticle there for you on, uh, on some of these tactical first focal plane scopes. The, the reticle, once you get into the lower magnifications is definitely less usable. I mean, you can design reticles that are usable in every magnification or, um, you can fix that with illumination and stuff like that. But, um, it's just a lot more, uh, it's just second focal plane scopes is kind of what the hunting community community is a lot more comfortable with, I would say. Yeah. So, um, the weight is is definitely a factor. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, if you're, if you're packing a rifle around in the, backwoods of Idaho, you're 
you, you don't want to have as much weight as possible. Um, but the give and take there is definitely durability. You know, the lighter you go on the scope, you're, you're, there's no doubt in my mind, you're giving up durability there. Yeah. So, um, another lever you can pull is kind of what we were talking about with objective lenses. So when you get those big high zoom, high magnification objectives, the, um, yeah. So if you have a real high mag scope, you're going to have uh, a larger objective on there, which yeah. is going to drive this, that exit people conversation we had yeah. earlier as well. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the give and takes there. The, uh, the turrets are a big driver for it as well. You, you can add a lot of weight with turrets, especially if you want them to be reliable and repeatable and durable. So if you, if you see features like exposed turrets, mm -hmm. like first focal plane, illuminated reticle, side focus, those are all features that are going to drive up the, the costs and, and a lot of them, the weight of the scope, right? Yeah. 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 What, what's sort of the relationship between cost and quality? Um, is I it, mean, is you it, can have, is it linear? Uh, there's definitely diminishing returns. Yeah. So, but you can definitely have a very high, high call quality, low cost product. It's, it's definitely possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, products that have been around for a long time, people have just gotten better at manufacturing them and you can maintain that quality and drive costs down. And when you make more of them, you can make them for less money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, you definitely are going to, the more you're paying, you're typically paying for a little bit better workmanship on, on items as well. So yeah. the, um, the features and benefits thing that we were talking about too, because uh, we were talking about future rifle scopes and what we want to do and, and which routes we want to go. Um, there's just levers you can pull, like capped windage is a great example. Uh, turrets are exposed. Turrets can be heavy and they can be expensive to make. There's mm -hmm. just more parts in them. There's no getting around that. And uh, maybe you have users that are not adjusting windage as much. And it's like you can cap that and you get a double benefit of it being lighter and it being less expensive. Same thing with illumination. Not everyone needs illumination. You know, not everyone wants it. And uh, that's another cost driver you can pull right out of the scope pretty yeah. easily. So, and, and here's my advice on, on windage. I like capped windage. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to zero my scope and it's going to be perfect. Not in the wind. Not in the wind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I've got a very, very good zero oh. and I'm going to put the cap back on windage. And then when I need to hold for wind, I'm going to use my reticle and my rangefinder and the data that my rangefinder gives me and my Kestrel and all these other tools mm -hmm. to tell me how far off to the side I need to hold for windage. Yeah, sure. And if I have the time, I'll dial for elevation. If I don't have the time, I'm going to use my reticle. Mm -hmm. The reason that I want to hold for wind instead of dialing for wind is that out west, the wind is typically not constant. It's not a laminar wind. And because of that, from one second to the next, I may be holding more or less wind. So the wind is going to be gusting and lulling. Mm -hmm. And if my moment to break the shot is in a lull and I've dialed for wind, now I'm going to have to hold off in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm always going to hold for wind and some guys will dial for their first winded shot and then hold for correction shots. That's much more of a tactical approach to it. Uh, for, for hunting, I'm really going to encourage people to look at this capped windage option. Yeah, definitely. I mean, your, your gun's going to lay flatter in a rifle case. Um, there's, there's other functional benefits to this. It's easier to carry. If you sling your gun, you know, you're going to have less scope sticking into your back. Yeah. Um, it's a sleeker thing. It's one less thing to get hit on a rock and yeah. Screw, screw your whole system right. up. And it makes this scope, um, less expensive to build, less expensive for you to purchase. You can roll that money into another hunt or another tag or another opportunity or more ammo to practice with for the love of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, I mean, you talked about it, but guys who are dialing for wind, it's, you, you got to remember to dial back to zero too. And a yeah. lot of guys 
don't. Easy especially to forget. In, especially in the heat of the moment type right. situation, you know. Yeah. You got animals running around left and right, and uh, it's easy to forget some of those small details, and then it throws throws everything off. Yeah. If you're ever at a, at a rifle comp that has a mover stage, go to the stage after that, and p- typically people will dial windage for a mover stage um, because they're already having to hold off, you know, 0.2 mils per mile an hour or whatever they're holding. Yeah. Um, but go to the stage right after and you will see a big bunch of people who forgot to change their windage and are now going to be missing off to the side. Yeah. And these are competition, very proficient, if not professional yeah. shooters. Yeah. Happens every time. Yeah. You've been hanging off Peter if you're shooting all those movers. Well, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. And I think one of the biggest benefits of shooting movers on a course like that is that you get to learn how utterly difficult it is. Yeah. And then if you think, oh, that deer's just walking across the hillside, he's going, you know, four miles an hour. I know how to do that. If you've tried to shoot a moving target that's moving four miles an hour and you missed it seven out of 10 times, now you realize Oh boy, I need him to stop before I break this shot because yeah. I I'm bad at this. Well, yeah, it's, or it's, it's really not hard. moving exactly perpendicular to you. Yeah, you know? it's it moving, changes the math real quick. It's so. moving. Yeah, it's such such a difficult shot. Yeah. And if you've got wind, whoo, yep, you're gonna have wind. There's always wind. Yeah, yeah. I don't ever get to shoot not wind. Not often. Yeah. No. Okay. Anything else you want to bring up? No, I kind of want to sh- thank Jordan for this week. Absolutely. Not sure if she's going to listen to this, but if she does, thank you, Jordan. This has been so cool. We've got an awesome place to stay down here. We're, this is one of the quietest places I've ever been. Yeah. Yeah, Sean was talking about that the other day. He said even the water sounds quiet. Yeah. I think it's the sand. This river's moving past us, but it's just silent. We're, we're um, down in, the, in this creek bottom, and there's these sandhill highlands all the way around us. We're very, very remote. Um, there's no cell service. It is just peaceful and yeah. you can very much focus on, on relaxing and on deer hunting and the deer hunting is incredible. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah. great, great host. Talking to Kirk about planes has been a lot of fun. So. Yeah. No, I mean, shooting three big bucks. Yeah. Big bucks. Yeah. One a day. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. Incredible. Incredible opportunity. Pe- people are paying a lot more money for, for a lot less of a hunt than, yeah. than this out here. Uh, so we will link to uh, everything that we talked about here in the show. So if there's something that you're curious about here in the show, um, check out the show notes and we'll link to that so that you can learn more about it. If you have a question for Mr. Joe Fratell, how do they get a hold of you? Oh, man, they could try emailing me, but it's going to be in a pile of them right now, especially after being out here for a while. What about just a an optics question in, in general? Honestly, our customer service guys are awesome. Yeah. Craig runs that team, and they do a great job. And eventually, if there's anything that they can't answer, it gets it makes its way up to me. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll work with those guys all the time. So, yeah. But I don't think there's much that those guys can't answer for most of the customers. Sure. Yeah. And, and if you don't want that struggle... Um, just send me your question. And if I can't answer it, then I will direct you to the person who can. Yeah. We'll put James's uh, cell phone number in the notes as well for everyone. So you can just call him. Yep. For, for a good time or, <laughs> or for a, a brief, uh, or in-depth explanation on why I prefer first vocal plane, oh. write me a message. Yeah. Okay, man. Thank you very much for your time. No Appreciate problem. it. No problem. Yeah. It was awesome. Learned a lot. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.